0: to podcast volume 18 do you call podcasts volumes i don't know episode 18 number 18 uh unit 18 welcome to podcast 18 so i want to talk uh, a little bit about uh dirty politics and faith in america dirty politics and faith in america so um this is occasioned by um well, uh, let's just say that it's occasioned by the release of the JFK papers, the government documents surrounding uh, JFK's assassination, which of course, has uh, been um, a, a ripe field for speculation and investigation and conspiracy theorists was Oswald, the only shooter, was um, was, was JFK uh, killed by the CIA was, uh, JFK killed by the communists was JFK killed by LBJ who wanted to be president, you know, etc. So we have all these, um, all these speculations. Okay. Now my point is not to get into the ins and outs of uh, of these details. My point is to encourage everybody to step back and think about it biblically in terms of what could happen. All right? I'm not talking about what did happen. I'm talking about what could happen, and I want to answer the, the people who dismiss the conspiracy theorists by saying, hey, listen, Mr. Grassy Knoll, uh, l- listen, this is America, this is a democracy, this is a, this is a wonderful country, and if you don't like it, why don't you pack up and leave, etc. cetera. Well, uh, away with your conspiracy theories. Now, let, let's just think about it in a stone in a cold a stone-cold way. Uh, The United States of America is one of the most powerful nations that has ever existed, if not the most powerful nation that ever existed. And if you include nuclear weapons, it is the most most powerful nation ever. And anybody who thinks, uh, back up for a moment, uh, people murder one another over pairs of sneakers People can kill one another over the, the contents of a money bag taken from a bank. Uh, people kill for light and trivial reasons and they kill for weightier reasons. And if the United States were an empire with as much power as it has in the world, with as m- many resources that are available to rulers and leaders in this nation, and if it, if it has all the resources and military might and prestige that it has, and there were no dirty deeds ever done in the pursuit of this kind of power, and by dirty deeds I mean assassination of political opponents, uh, that sort of thing. If that sort of thing has never happened, then it would be the very first time in human history, you can't whether you're talking about uh, the Roman em- the Roman Empire or the Greeks in their heyday or the Persian Empire or the uh, uh, British Empire. Uh, you look you just don't have that kind of power lying around without a certain kind of person who is amoral. I mean, amoral to the back teeth, doing the Machiavellian thing. Trying to get into power. Now w- we obviously know that um, assassinations occur in in American history. They have they have occurred. So um, you you have Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and JFK was assassinated and and uh, uh, we've had other presidents assassinated also. But when that happens, our instinctive Go to faith position. Um, is that the assassination is perpetrated by a solitary nut job? It's got to be a solitary nut nut job. Um, it cannot be because this would rattle everybody's faith in America. It cannot be the vice president who does it. Um, but I would encourage all our. I would encourage the, my listening audience out there to go read a book. Now I'm not accusing. LBJ of doing this, although I everything I understand about that gentleman was that he was the kind of uh, ruthless, um, cold-blooded um, Machiavellian politician. Uh, he was he was a piece of work that that gent was. But so my but my point is not to get into the ins and outs. Could he did he, could he or did he or whatever? But, uh, my point is simply you can't dismiss it because this is a democracy. You can't dismiss it because this is America. You ha- you have to have a, a very hard-headed view of human nature. And I'll, I'll just conclude with one uh, other observation, and that is our desire to say that the uh, when assassinations, when they happen in American history, serve no larger political purpose. They are never... Uh, conducted by the victors in the situation, they—they're all. it's always an outcast, it's always a misfit, it's always someone who um, uh, is troubled, you know, Hinkley, the guy who, who tried to shoot uh, President Reagan, fits the bill nicely, right? And I'm saying that that kind of faith in a political system is idolatrous. Um, democracy doesn't keep us from sin. Um, the American way of life doesn't prevent this sort of thing only only the mercy of God does only the gospel does only, only Jesus does so I'm not accusing any one person of shooting any other one person I am saying that you can't rule that kind of thing out Pol- power politics has always been attracted to positions of power power politics have, has always been attracted to that and um, and so I'm not saying he, this person or that person, but I'm saying you better, you better believe that when you have that much power, that much influence, that much prestige on the table, there are some people who are not your friend, They're people who are not, um, shall we say, genteel, who are after that, and you if you, you can't exclude them from the equation by definition. So one of the things I like to do is review books. I like to talk about books. I love books. Books are good. So the book I want to talk about uh, today, and the author I want to talk about, is Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. What happened was, um, it, what happened to me, uh, my introduction to Chesterton, happened on this wise. I, uh, I had joined the navy right out of high school and spent my time in the submarine service and then i i got out of the navy and i was coming to the university of idaho to study uh, philosophy and um, and when i came to study philosophy uh, earlier i had um, uh, without any kind of uh, encouragement or training in those sorts of things i'd earlier uh, tried to read some francis schaefer who was all the all the rage at that time, and I and I, I love Schaefer. I love love his work, but when I was first introduced to Schaefer, I think it was eighteen or nineteen. I read Escape from Reason, and I I remember telling somebody that you know what do you mean? Uh, Reformed people don't believe in speaking in tongues. You know, he uh, I didn't know what he was talking about, at least on first my with at. at uh, my first introduction because he was he was dealing with things that i was not acquainted with well i, I did my hitch in the um, in the service and then decided that i was going to major in philosophy and the re- reason i did that was uh, not uh, not because i thought that the job prospects were great in philosophy uh, people used to ask me what are you going to do with your philosophy degree and i said i am going to get a job at taco time i I will be the one in the back saying, "What what is a taco? When you when you boil it all down, what what is a taco? What is taco ness?" Uh, I would work there for three days and then I would be on to something else. Well, actually, I I studied philosophy. I majored in philosophy because my plan was to work in a literature ministry, a, an evangelical evangelistic bookstore in a college town, which is what my dad was doing. That's why he opened up a a bookstore in Pullman, Washington, and a bookstore in Moscow, Idaho, uh, as an evangelistic outreach to the college students. And I was gonna do something similar. I was gonna go to school, get my training, get my degree, and then go open up a bookstore somewhere. That was the plan before the Lord derailed uh, derailed it. Now, what I uh, so I, stu- I thought I'd, I'd study philosophy because I was planning on being in an evangelistic apologetics setting in a college town. And I thought, oh, well, uh, a philosophy degree would help me understand, study, and read through uh, what other people believe, what all the other belief uh, systems were. I didn't want to tell someone, well, your Buddhism is wrong because it begins with a B. I, I wanted to have studied what uh, others thought. I wanted to study the available worldviews that were out there, etc. So I did. I, I started studying philosophy. And... I, I rapidly encountered uh, the reality that that unbelieving philosophy is rootless, aimless, pointless, and but that doesn't keep it from making razor fine distinctions suspended in midair about a bunch of nothing. So I, I'll have to say that my study of philosophy did not enchant me. I I enjoyed the questions, but I didn't enjoy the pursuit of the answers with no intention of getting to answers. Uh, That was, uh, I found that exasperating. And in that, in my first uh, year studying philosophy, I think it may have been even the first semester, I came across Chesterton's Orthodoxy. And I read it, and it was like coming across an oasis in a dry and thirsty land. Uh, here was Chesterton talking about the great issues in ordinary language with an ordinary vocabulary, exuding common sense from every poor, and, and dealing with standard objections to the faith in a glorious and commonsensical and jovial way. I, w- I was uh, conquered at once. I loved that book. Uh, and it was, in in a very real sense, it was a lifeline. It was a support. Okay, being thinking straight is not crazy. Thinking straight is not uh, a bad thing to do. So orthodoxy is uh, it's just enchanting. I've, I read it through at that time, and I, I don't know how many times I've read it since. I've listened to it on Audible. I've read through, you know, just periodically when I want a... Um, a pick-me-up. I, I I read read through Orthodoxy again, and of course I've re- I've gone on to read uh, Chesterton elsewhere. I will say that his novels needed, in my this is my view, Chesterton's novels needed a good editor. They needed someone to to uh, push back at on Chesterton's brilliance and short attention span, and and he had some fantastic fantastic ideas for novels, but I don't think he really um, followed through on them the way he ought to have. But as a journalist and as a uh, popular, popularizer of critical Christian responses to the unbelief of our age, I have to say over and over again, Chesterton is just simply prophetic. He's just great. Will be God. God. So, hamartiology. Peter tells us that ministers ought not to be motivated by ice crocodas, uh, um, which is translated in 1 Peter 5 2 as filthy lucre. A related term, ice is is prescribed uh, for ministers in 1 Timothy 3 3 and 3 8 and Titus 1 7. It's one word, so it's a it's a compound word, which if we if we wrote things this way which we sometimes do it would come out something like dirty money dirty money as one word or filthy lucre as one word now what is that supposed to mean well let me give you uh, let me give you an illustration of one of our problems how many times have you heard pastors uh, say something like uh, you know if you've got something against anybody in this room uh don't come to the Lord's Supper until you go make it right. Now, my point here is not to object to making it right before you come to the Lord's Supper. Of course, I think uh, the Lord's Supper is an expression of koinonia, uh, koinonia fellowship, and if there's something that's disruptive to koinonia fellowship, then, of course, you ought to put it right before you come to the table. But uh, the thing that interests me about this is that preachers often say, don't come to the table, don't come take the bread, don't come take the wine, when you're when you remember that your brother has something against you but when jesus uses that uh, expression he says if you remember your brother has something against you go and put it right but he's jesus is talking about leaving your gift on the altar he's not talking about the lord's supper he's not talking about participation in the sacrament how many times have you told have you heard ministers say now, if you're on the outs with somebody in this room, you just forget about tithing, just forget about giving to the church. We don't want a single slender, uh, we don't want a single uh, slender dime from you until you put it, put things right with your brother. Well, somehow, um, ministers never gravitate to telling people not to give to the church until things are put right. So, um, why is that? Well. It's quite striking that when you look at this word "filthy lucre," this word "dirty money," um, in every every place the New Testament uses it, it's talking about ministers. It's talking about um, men who control, who men who take offerings, men who take love offerings, men who gather up gifts, men who handle the tithe. So we ought we ought to be hard-headed about this don't assume that the temptations that temptations to greed are temptations that are only experienced by parishioners and not experienced at all by elder boards or deacon boards or treasurers of churches or ministers who have a mortgage to pay and so on all three times the new testament mentions this problem it is talking to or about men in the ministry Okay, all three times that the New Testament talks about this, it's talking about men in the ministry. And uh, and fine, Ron Sider and Jim Wallace don't know anything about economic reality, and I acknowledge that they really don't know anything about uh, anything about it. So we may go to sleep tonight in the deep confidence that these warnings don't mean what the evangelical socialists say they mean. Great. I, I say great, I, and I acknowledge that they really don't. Um, but what do they mean they mean something right they mean something and they uh, and i'm happy to if, if someone wanted to uh, um critique socialism or attack socialism or attack collectivism or poor um poor all sorts of learned abuse over the top of uh over the top of socialism i can i can take a lot of that right i i that sort of thing is cheers me right up i i am entirely in favor of it but just because the socialists say it warn us about uh, the dangers of money and and in warning us about the dangers of money are saying that they ought to be put in charge of collecting it all um, just because i'm dubious about their motives does not mean that there isn't a place where we need to watch ourselves, right? There there most certainly is. So um, the Bible is not a collectivist book at all. It's not a socialist book at all. Uh, the early Christians who shared in the book of Acts were not exhibiting an early form of communism. All of that is true, 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 true. But the Bible does warn us about filthy lucre. The Bible warns us about having our heart set on unrighteous mammon the Bible does tell us that there's a certain bias that unrighteous mammon has that wealth has and that um, and we can receive it and as the Old Testament says Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked Uh, Cotton Mather said faithfulness begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother God in the time of the sickness the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.